You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And Ryan, today you're going to introduce us to the idea of anchor words. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, variously on the show, we've talked about ideas about latent variable models, right? Which are this kind of very powerful way to model data in which you think every piece of data that you look at has some unobserved properties. But if you knew what those properties were, then you would know a lot about what's going on. So things like mixture models, which are a way to do model-based clustering with latent variables, are, are a really nice example. We imagine that, you know, we have a bunch of data and, um, and it belongs to different groups, and I just can't observe the groups. I build a model in which there's a latent variable for every one of these for what group each one of our data belongs to. Topic models are another incredibly powerful latent variable model, in particular the idea of latent Dirichlet allocation, in which every word within every document belongs to some topic, and then the documents themselves own a kind of collection of these topics. And so then we can understand what people are talking about, and we can understand kind of what structure appears in different documents and categorize them and search and just do different kinds of analysis. Hidden Markov models are another example where we have time series and there's some latent evolution of of some property, and if we just kind of knew what that was, then we would maybe be able to understand kind of what maybe a less noisy version of the data might look like. So latent variable models are all over the place, and we like them all across machine learning and statistics. The challenge of latent variable models is that they're almost always very hard to learn. And I mean here hard in a kind of a formal sense. So when theoretical computer scientists talk about problems being hard and easy, what they're really kind of talking about is whether or not it's possible to learn or solve the problem in polynomial time. So we have some property, and the question is, does the amount of computing power that we need to use grow, say, like exponentially with the, um, say, the number of data or the number of topics or something like that? Or does it grow more like polynomially? So does it grow maybe quadratically or cubically or something? And although it's certainly the case that polynomial time doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's easy and efficient in practice, um, this is the way that we often talk about, uh, we often talk about things formally. It turns out that learning latent variable models is almost always NP-hard. And from a practical point of view, that just means that getting the best latent variable model, learning the best topic model, or fitting the best hidden Markov model is going to be something you can't always expect to do. And you might be able to get pretty good, but you won't ever know how much worse it is than the optimal solution, um, typically. So there's been a, a kind of a lot of work in machine learning over the last several years of trying to understand situations in which it's possible to learn latent variable models in polynomial time. And so kind of what are the conditions under which or algorithms that might exist uh, for which you can, for which in polynomial time, you can still get a good answer and understand the quality of that answer. I think a lot of the kind of uh, initial work on this was in the clustering situation. Uh, And essentially, it turns out that if your data are well separated, that means if the clusters that actually exist in the data are kind of like pretty easy, that is you have groups and they're kind of not very, they don't overlap very much and they're well distinguished then and that's a situation in which you can expect clustering to work efficiently and get a good answer that you can understand without it being potentially an exponentially difficult problem. More recently, though, um, people have been making progress on, doing, on finding these kinds of separatedness assumptions for topic models. So if I have a bunch of documents, what are the circumstances under which I can say that they're kind of well separated in some sense, and then I can expect a topic modeling algorithm to do well in polynomial time? There's a few different folks that have been have been working on this. Um, I associated most with like Ankur Moitra and uh, Sanjeev Arora, but there's definitely other folks involved as well. And we'll put some links on the um, on the website to some of these papers. They've come up with this really interesting idea um, called anchor words. 
with clusters, the idea of it being easy is that the clusters are kind of well separated. Maybe there's some kind of space between the two groups. Well, topic models, it's an interesting alternative idea, which is that that there exist words in the vocabulary that are entirely associated with exactly one topic. It's not such an unintuitive idea. That is to say, so if we, you know, see the word touchdown, then we might reasonably say that that document is about football. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's kind of the idea, that there exists some words that are perfectly discriminative, um, that if you see that word, then you know that, that that topic appears in that document. So and you can think of other examples. I don't know, Congress, right? We think if you see the word Congress, probably you're looking at a, you know, at a document that contains some amount of political discussion. And we could probably come up with a lot of words that are kind of like this, where they're highly discriminative. And these are what we call anchor words. So the idea is that um, these words belong to exactly one topic. And therefore, once you see one of them, you know that that topic for sure appears in that document. This turns out to be a really interesting kind of analog to the idea of well-separatedness in clustering. And that if you can identify such anchor words and they exist in your documents, then you can uh, provably and efficiently learn a topic model. This is is really kind of caught fire uh, in, a, in different ways. And people have been writing different papers that have been exploring this idea and trying to figure out how to deal with a situation where, say, uh, you know, the word exists, but it may be very low probability. And so it's not interesting and, and, and kind of lots of different corner cases. But I think it's a really, it's a really fun agenda uh, to try to identify situations in which this notion of nice, clean clusters can be generalized to documents where we have a nice, clean understanding of what one document is about relative to another. Absolutely fascinating. And we'll have some papers up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question is about selecting sample size. Hello, Catherine and Ryan. Thank you for all the insights on the podcast. My name is Parag and I work as a software architect for a technology company in California. Our software solves a binary classification problem by looking up within a decision table for an address space of 15 binary features. I would like to expand the feature set to up to 25 features and use a supervised machine learning approach instead. Apart from all the obvious reasons, this approach will also allow us to create a benchmark for our current and future accuracy metrics. Obviously, there is a cost involved with collecting human decisions. Companies like to invest wisely and hence would like to keep costs to a minimum while achieving the desired results. I have a couple of questions around selecting samples for the training and test set. One, what is the minimal sample size to choose for n binary features? And two, more importantly, how does one wisely select the actual samples in order to get the best desired results? Thank you for your feedback. Thanks for your question. You know, this addresses some really fundamental um, issues in machine learning. First, there's the question of how to select the number of, you know, how many data do I need to do well? And this is a very deep question, and it, it has to do with what we call learnability. And in fact, this gets back to some of the original foundational results in uh, learning theory by Les Valiant and, and other folks. And it's all about what the space of different hypotheses is that you're willing to consider. That is to say that you have a function that's going to take these binary features and turn them into to some label. 
And how many data you need is going to depend on how big the set of such hypotheses is. And so there's no right answer. It's going to depend on uh, what kinds of functions you're willing to allow. If you want to allow for extremely complicated functions, then you're going to need more data. And this is actually something that you can talk about formally. To, to highlight the way in which there's no single right answer, you can look at, for example, things like statistical genetics, where we might want to be learning a function from a, sm- from a set of features that might have millions of different locations on a genome, and but we only have, say, a couple of hundred people that we can analyze in this way. So this is what we call the sort of small n, large p situation. So n is the number of individuals we're talking about, and p is the number of features but if you use appropriate regularization, so in stat gen, that might mean something like a linear model with uh, an L1 or lasso penalty on the, on the weights, then you can often still do, still do quite well. On the other hand, if you think that in your problem, the conjunction of these different binary features is really important and you need a lot of very complicated interactions between things, then linear models aren't going to do the trick. And so you'll need possibly more data in order to learn those features. Going from 15 to 25 doesn't seem like such a, such a big deal. These days, that's on the very small end of problems that people regularly consider. If you're trying to figure out how to engineer features, I would take, a, take some time and learn about ideas like kernel methods and so on to see if you can sort of implicitly solve the problem uh, with larger feature spaces. You also asked about trying to engineer the, the training and test split. I think this is a situation you want to be quite careful about. In the last episode, we talked about data hygiene. And one of the challenges in engineering the difference between a training and test split is that you want to make sure that after you train on some data that you can still do well in the test set and that the test set is somehow you know, representative of the same problem. So typically we will select between training and test randomly so that that way we don't feel like we're, you know, learning something inappropriate out of the training set that doesn't generalize um, and that we kind of have an accurate representation of whether we're overfitting or underfitting. More generally, if your data is sort of, uh, say, evolving over time or you do have some some sort of um, drift in the problem that you're trying to solve, then you'll wind up wanting to, to make more sophisticated decisions. In terms of allocating resources optimally to gathering data from humans, you might look into the idea of active learning. Active learning is is a field that is exactly about the area of trying to identify which examples to label and study next and learn about in a way that you learn the most from them. You could kind of imagine a process in which you learn about some data and then you have the opportunity to go gather some new data, ask some humans to label some new data in a supervised setting, And the question is kind of which data are the most valuable for which to do this. And active learning is kind of a way to to reason about this formally. And there's a lot of a lot of great stuff going on there. So it sounds like there's a lot to learn in this space. But these are some of the really fundamental, the basic questions that everybody has to deal with when they're launching on a problem like this. That's exactly right. I think I think these kinds of questions are actually quite typical of exploring a new machine learning problem in practice. Thanks for the question. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at TLKNGMCHNS or thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. Our guest this week on Talking Machines is Nando de Freitas. He is with Google's DeepMind and also Oxford. And we asked Nando the same question that we start everyone with. How did you get where you are? Um, it was a long path. <laughs> Starting in um, a long time ago as an undergrad in South Africa, 
I, I became interested in neural networks simply because a professor introduced me to them and asked me to implement at the time in assembly language um, directly on a chip uh, a neural network to control a machine to improve uh, a particular industrial process in South Africa. And, and that went well and it was transferred to industry. I really enjoyed it. Um, I moved on to Cambridge to do a PhD and then to Berkeley to study AI with Stuart Russell and eventually I became a professor in Canada. And later I wanted to do something um, uh, something different with my life, so I moved to Oxford and, um, and met uh, the people at DeepMind who were doing absolutely fantastic, exciting work. Um, and eventually I joined forces with them. So tell me what you're tackling right now. What's the sort of most exciting question you've got on your plate at this point? Solve intelligence. <laughs> oh, oh, and that's easily done, right? Next week we should have the paper? <laughs> no, it, and it's, I think it's impossible to predict how long it's going to be, and it's not even clear whether it's attainable. Um, mainly in the sense that more than solving intelligence, I think of it as demystifying intelligence. There is this mystery that we're trying to understand, and every time we understand it, it's somewhat simpler than we used to think it was. Uh, reasoning is starting to look simpler in the sense that we used to think that being able to look at images and detect a face would be only something that an intelligent machine could do. Um, we can do that now. We can do speech recognition fairly well. We can do object recognition fairly well. We can do a huge number of things fairly well, and we don't call them intelligence anymore. We just expect our machines to do them. Everyone grabs an iPhone and expects a face to appear and uh, to be, be surrounded by a box. But very few people actually take time to think of uh, how that happens. <laughs> so at what point do you think we will, what for you will define an intelligent machine? If all of these definitions, these benchmarks we've gotten to, and these aren't intelligent machines at that point, when, what does that look like to you? I actually don't know, especially because of this uh, thing that was, um, uh, many folks call the AI effect in the sense that every time we build some, we aim for building intelligent agents and we succeed, uh, we often find that the solution is simpler than we thought. Or at least once, or even if it's not simple, if we can understand it, we tend no longer to think of it as intelligence. So it's it's a moving uh, barrier, but but I think there are on the on the other hand, there there are things that are obvious that uh, humans can do that no machine can do um, at present. There's tasks in language like very uh, the problems of, uh, for example, what we call coreference resolution, and that problem is one where you could say um, that goes as follows: the president of the United States addressed the Congress uh, today. Um, the Republicans weren't too happy with uh, what he had to say. Um, and then you can go on to talk blah, 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 blah in your article. And at the end you say, and uh, the leader of nation left sad uh, from Congress. And at that stage you need to know that he and leader of the Congress and President and Obama, they're all the same thing. And we humans have no trouble. In fact, it sounds almost idiotic that I'm saying that this is a problem, <laughs> but it actually turns out to be extremely hard to get, get machines to, to do this type of thing. Um, um, to do tasks that involve natural understanding language um, and that also involve grounded knowledge. 
So you could have a huge database of every fact on um, that's available on the web um, as available to a machine that's trying to make a decision. Um, for example, trying to calculate um, how many um, acres of corn you need to feed a cow. Um, but at the same, but there are other problems that involve sort of ground knowledge, like where you ask a machine, you know, go to the end of the corridor um, and grab the bucket and come back and wipe the floor. Um, so you have to have an understanding of what these elements in the world are. And we are still a bit far from solving those problems. I don't think they're impossible, um, but a lot of work has to be done in, still in that direction. So um, a lot of the, the sort of... Artificial intelligence has been broken down into much smaller problems, computer vision, natural language processing. Um, what do you think is sort of the next problem that the discipline is going to tackle? Where's the next step? So I think decomposing was necessary because we wanted to understand. Uh, it's a common strategy when you're trying to learn something, break it into pieces, understand the pieces. Um, but we also know that these pieces are not far from each other. Um, and we know that... Uh, reasoning and vision and um, are all integrated together. So a lot of the work that's going to uh, be happening is about how to integrate uh, things like reasoning, um, high-level knowledge, uh, data, knowledge, memory, uh, perception, whether it's auditory um, or visual or, or um, haptic perception, touch, mm -hmm. that is. Um, and, and action, how to act uh, upon the world. And sort of putting these um, elements together in an intelligent architecture is, I think, one of the real challenges that we're facing. And understanding how to put them together in a way that is fully trainable. That is, we put all these components together, but when you launch this in the world, and it receives data, it should be able to learn as a coherent entity. Many modules communicating, um, perhaps with a very interesting um, architecture that involves units that work at different temporal scales, um, different abstract scales, um, but which nonetheless will be able to learn from data and will learn to perform tasks more efficiently. I think that's the real big challenge. It's, it's an, arch um, an architecture problem. And it's, it's precisely that reason why I joined DeepMind, because that's what DeepMind is trying to address, is trying to solve intelligence by combining um, all these uh, various elements. So let's talk a little bit about DeepMind. You've spent most of your career in academia, and you've also had a number of companies that you've sold off, which is sort of a, a growing trend in machine learning, have a startup, sell it to somebody, keep going. Um, what do you think is the influence of sort of uh, basic research in the corporate world that seems to be, there seems to be a slice of the Venn diagram that's expanding in machi machine learning between academia and, and corporations? Um, I think it's inevitable that basic research in intelligence will uh, affect all companies and all companies will, will, would have to pay attention um, because these type of technologies can have a profound impact in the type of products that people use, uh, whether it be in healthcare, whether it be in advertising, whether it be in um, consumer electronics, entertainment. Um, most products these days have intelligent elements embedded in them. Um, I mentioned one uh, before, which was cameras that can detect artifacts automatically. Um, 
self-driving cars, another sort of uh, technology that really requires good vision systems because the cars have to be able to see pedestrians and understand what they're seeing, where the pedestrians are going, predict what they're going to do, uh, and so on, in order to drive efficiently. So by solving all these uh, scientific problems, these technological challenges, companies will build products of great uh, value. Uh, and so it's natural that they want to invest in these technologies because they're just coming of age. Do you think the nature of basic research is different in an academic setting versus a, a commercial setting or one that's attached to a, a company? Right now, it's not very different. Um, one of uh, the things that's different is um, there's perhaps less admin <laughs> in companies <laughs> than at the universities. Um, and, uh, of course, there isn't uh, the teaching element, um, uh, what we would think of uh, undergraduate teaching. Um, I find that my interactions with uh, junior colleagues in the company is still very similar to the type of interactions that I have with my uh, PhD students. I essentially have to convince uh, engineers that my ideas are exciting enough that they will want to come and work with me and develop uh, wonderful products. Um, so that type of interaction is the same in the academic environment as in the workplace. Um, but it's, at present at least, <laughs> we have more freedom in the industrial world uh, than in many academic organizations to do hmm. good work. And we don't need to worry. Um, so industry knows that what we're doing is very important. They're happy to fund us because they see value in what we're doing. Um, whereas when it comes to um, public initiatives, we still have to spend most of our time trying to convince fu huge funding agencies um, that we need that money for our research. And, and it's inevitable because there's many people with different uh, goals, to, um, all doing important things, trying to convince governments to invest in science. And uh, at present, it seems that some companies, uh, at least in some areas of science, they're more interested to invest in them than, uh, or they have more resources to invest in science than governments have. Nando, the public perception of artificial intelligence is that a robot is going to come and break into my house and take all my things or become my evil overlord. Um, and I think that this has become more popular when we see sort of scientific luminaries uh, like Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk saying things that are kind of terrifying. Um, as someone who's in the machine learning community, what do you think? What is your take on sort of the public discourse at this point? Um, I, th I think people have to be genuinely concerned about any new technology. Um, um, AI has great promise, and I, I want you to start actually by saying the why AI is important. Um, AI is making uh, could make wonderful things for technology um, in, in the medical sector, for example. When you imagine being sent home after you have a, a hip fracture surgery, AI by instrumenting that person, AI could automatically predict any lapses that the patient might have, alert doctors automatically. Um, it could reduce the amount spent uh, in healthcare by huge amounts, while at the same time improving the health, uh, health services provided to everyone. So I think as we're moving to more and more instrumentation, 
and, and more centralization of uh, medical records from people, we will be able to make huge improvements to our uh, worldwide healthcare systems. We'll also be able to deal with epidemiology much better and be able to predict how disease propagates and even be able to design better strategies for fighting viruses and uh, be able to um, be ready to confront any new viruses um, such as Ebola and, and other uh, uh, potential threats um, to uh, most people. Um, we'll also be able to build uh, systems that improve our daily lives, like imagine having automatic uh, cars. Um, I believe that public transport is just as good as a, a solution, but if you do want the comfort of a car to get uh, to work then, uh, or to get to a party, or, uh, then I would definitely advocate for we continuing our research in building automatic cars. And perhaps initially on highways, but eventually um, everywhere. Right now, if you go to Wikipedia, you'll find out that more than a million people die every year in car accidents. That's a huge number. That's more than the population of most cities that uh, we live in, unless we live in, you know, in the mega cities. And to me, it's barbaric that we're not doing anything about this. Um, I think AI... Uh, Automatic cars, which is just a, it's a, an automatic car, is just a robot. It's a robot that will save millions of lives every year. It's important to invest in that technology to help people. But we also have to be careful about how, um, the technology because just like any other technology, we can use it for good uses or for bad uses. The same technology could be, be used to build robots that we send uh, to war. Um, the same technology that we could use to... Um, Find predict whether someone will have um, a heart attack in enough time to send an ambulance and rescue them and save their lives. It's the same technology that someone could be, use um, in order to decide whether they should have higher premiums or not or whether the insurance should be cancelled. So at the end of the day, uh, what's clear in all this is that we need to be thinking about it and we need to be thinking about uh, legislation and the legal aspects involved in artificial intelligence. I think we scientists are aware of this. Um, DeepMind um, actually has people working on this, on ethics, and we believe uh, very seriously on trying to build um, AI for the service of humankind. And so that has to continue happening. Um, it is reassuring that scientists are doing this, and it's important that we think of AI in these positive terms, into um, something that if we, under the right legislation, will be of great benefit to humankind. So what do you think it's going to take to have sort of a calm, rational public discourse about what I assume you see as like a very useful sort of basic daily tool that people are spending a lot of time rightfully developing? To have a public discourse, the first thing is uh, people need to understand uh, what it is that we do. And, uh, a lot, and in fact, people need to understand even what happens when they download apps to their phone, because I think most people are not aware of um, what information they're giving away, for example. So speaking of privacy, this is not an even an AI issue. This is just a general issue of technology and how people react to technology and how ignorant they are of most of these aspects. Um, I think this requires informing people. Um, this requires thinking carefully 
about having legislation that decides what the defaults should be on some of these apps. Uh, for example, perhaps the default should be that the app should not suck all your contact information unless you allow it uh, to do so. Um, but also, um, I think at the end of the day, it's a question of investing in education. Um, I think as uh, technology is taking over the world, um, machine learning, some of the things we talk about, like uh, fundam some fundamentals like base rule and so on, are things that we probably need to start um, teaching in high school so that um, when we talk about them, the public knows what we're talking about. So uh, there's a huge need for improved education. So as always, I'm a huge advocate of investing in education because that is essential to the way we, in which we will be able to actually understand the new technologies and be able to participate in the debate in a constructive way. There is something about intelligence that is different than any other science. Um, when it comes to talk about quasars, only scientists tend to comment on the properties of quasars. The general public accepts that they don't know much about quasars and they don't say much about quasars. And the same is true of nanotechnologies and many other areas of science. However, if you ask the public to comment on intelligence, everyone has an opinion on what intelligence <laughs> is, even though it's just as complex as quasars. Um, and so since everyone will be advancing their opinion, it is important that it be an informed and educated opinion. Education is important. Nando de Freitas, fascinating guy. Yeah, Nando's really great. He's also just a lot of fun to hang out with. He's done work in a lot of different areas from approximate inference. He's well known for his work on like sequential Monte Carlo. And then more recently, he's been doing really cool stuff with Bayesian optimization. Yeah, definitely. So somebody, you want to read his papers. Definitely. So that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Mm -hmm.